This is the Thursday, March 29 episode of Cato Daily Podcast. Welcome, I'm Anastasia Yuglova. Today I'm on the phone with Virginia Postrel, author of The Future and Its Enemies and former editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, currently with The Atlantic Monthly. Virginia wrote one of the response essays to Brian Doherty's lead essay over at Cato Unbound this month about his new book, Radicals for Capitalism. In this interview, Virginia elaborates on the details of her argument in her essay. Virginia, one of the central themes of your essay is this tension between deductive logic and empiricism. So where does libertarianism fit between these two extremes? Well, it's really orthogonal, to use a technical term. Libertarianism doesn't fit between those extremes. Those are approaches to analyzing any sort of question or fact about the world, and there are libertarians who fall along that full spectrum. So if you want to take the sort of extreme deductivism that would be associated with Mises or Rothbard. I don't know what you would say, an extreme empiricism. I don't know exactly who I would associate with that. Maybe Tyler Cowen lately, (laughs) but certainly somebody like Ronald Coase, whom I talked about in my essay, who doesn't even consider himself a libertarian, even though most people would consider him a significant libertarian intellectual figure doesn't consider himself a libertarian because he says he just looks at the facts on the ground. It's not a matter of sort of deducing what's best for liberty. And I'll take him at his word, but he certainly had a big influence on people's thinking about questions of liberty and property rights and institutions. But which of these approaches would you say is more useful or practical? Is libertarianism too doctrinaire, or on the other hand, is adherence to a priori first principles necessary to achieve libertarian ends? Well, I think that it's a mistaken trope that's common, not so much within scholarly circles, but sort of everyday libertarian circles that you and I have traveled in, to equate a priorism with principles. That's not the only way to have principles. And in my follow-up essay, I write about that some. A lot of the things that we call principles are extremely useful as guides to behavior and protections for the individual against the state or against an onslaught of attacks on liberty and the things that we want to preserve. But they're not really rooted in nature. And I would say that natural rights is a fiction, but it's a very useful fiction. It's a very good heuristic. If you want to have a certain kind of society, if you operate on the assumption that there's something called natural rights, you're much more likely to have a positive result, even though that is the Lockean original contract and all of that sort of thing is is not literally true. It's extremely useful as a guide to behavior, and in that sense, it's a very useful principle. In his Cato Unbound essay, Brian Doherty was doubtful that, as he writes, a purely consequentialist libertarianism will create a world as free as most libertarians would like to see the world to be. And Tom Palmer at Cato disagrees with him on this point, saying essentially that people don't need to want a libertarian world in order to achieve such a world. Where do you fall? Well, I agree more with Tom than with Brian. In fact, I found myself agreeing with virtually everything that Tom wrote of <laughs> I would say, first of all, we all are guilty of throwing around this term consequentialist without really defining exactly what we mean, and it is a term that has a lot of baggage. 
it is sometimes used to mean that you are only interested in material standard of living. And I certainly, while I'm very interested in the material standard of living, that is not the only thing I'm interested in. And when I talk about consequences, I am definitely including the consequences for people's liberty, for their sense of security against threats of overarching power, against you know having the government come and knock at your door in the middle of the night and take you away to God knows where. I mean, that's, that's a consequence you don't want. And when I talk about consequentialism, I'm including those kinds of consequences. So that, in fact, I think that even most highly deductivist libertarians in their rhetoric actually have a pretty good idea of the good society that they would like to see and evaluate their principles against how likely they believe they are to achieve that society. I mean, there are people who would say, no, no, I would be happy with a world where everyone, including me, was a miserable wretch, but we had no state. But I think those people are a very small minority. I think most people have a sense of values of the good life and care about liberty as a consequence of policy. And so I would say that Brian is right that you can't be purely consequentialist if that just means caring about material well-being and not about values, but he's wrong if he thinks you can deduce what values you ought to have. Those values come from somewhere else. What if libertarians took a purely consequentialist approach without much regard for first principles? For example, if we had a world full of Ronald Coases, wouldn't that be a pretty good world? If they were really like Ronald Coase, yes. Well, that would tell us about a lot of certain kinds of questions, questions of property, which is what Coase works on, economic questions. And that, in fact, would be, I think, quite a good world if you actually read what Coase wrote instead of what people think Coase wrote. Uh, and Coase's concerns with transaction costs are significant and are ones where a pure deductivist libertarianism kind of breaks down because it doesn't acknowledge that even if in a perfect world we might solve certain problems through market exchanges, the costs of doing so are inordinate and swamp the benefits, and so therefore we don't do them, and so therefore there's a problem of collective action. Now, the state may not be the best way to solve that, but I think you can get to a kind of world with a consequentialist argument, but you can get to a world that's very oppressive with a consequentialist argument as well. I mean, take an issue that I'm very concerned with, which is organ donation. And, um, you know, I've been advocating organ markets and incentives and various things as a solution to the big problem of the shortage of kidneys. Well, if you're a pure consequentialist, you could say, well, you know, let's just conscript people's kidneys. <laughs> Everybody's got two. If you're healthy and you can be a donor, we're just going to line you up at the local hospital and take your kidneys. It violates our sense of, you know, a very central question, which is that you own your body. It's not like God told me you own your body. I have some universal knowledge of it or that it is in some sense true, like a fact, but if you don't own your body, you sort of don't own anything, and you don't have any autonomy, and how can that be? And that's not going to produce a society we want to live in. That is, I think, the essential libertarian insight, which comes up in the issue of organ markets, because, well, if you can't sell your kidneys, what can you sell? Why can you sell your labor, but not a piece of your body, something that is surely yours? So, 
consequentialism gets a bad rap partly because it's not that difficult to spin out absurd scenarios. And I think I am not a philosopher. I very much associate myself with Anglo-Scottish-American tradition that is empiricist and pragmatic, but pragmatic from a principled point of view. That is pragmatic in a way where we value people's autonomy. We value people's individual happiness. We value these liberal values. They are part of our culture, and they are also, in some sense, universal. And we have a lot of evidence that people value them universally. And that's why I talk about this cultural libertarianism, which I think is just as important as the intellectual libertarianism to which all of the writers in the symposium have devoted our careers. I think that, in fact, it is not simply a matter of convincing people with argumentation. It's also a question of people wanting and longing for a certain peaceful and free existence. Just switching gears a little bit now, you spend some time talking in your essay about stasis alliances. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I've written a whole book on this subject called The Future and Its Enemies. My argument is that we're now in an era, and by now I mean starting about 10 years ago or more, in an era where in many respects the traditional left-right divisions are not the most useful ways to think about fundamental political alliances, by which I don't necessarily mean Democrats and Republicans, because party affiliation is different from ideological alliances. And here I'm talking about coalitions. I'm not talking about people who agree with each other on everything or even on underlying values necessarily, except in some important respects. So that today I think we have a real division between people who want a society that is extremely controlled, very predictable, stable, often looking back to some past golden age, imagined golden age, and I call them stasis. And this particularly comes up in issues that have to do with the dynamism of free societies, whether those are free markets or free individual life choices. And in fact, just today in the Wall Street Journal, there was a very long article about Alan Blinder, the liberal Princeton macroeconomist, who has suddenly discovered that oh my goodness, you might be able to have people do intellectual work over the Internet and we could have you know, free markets and jobs for white-collar people internationally and people would lose their jobs and, oh my God, this would be terrible. Never mind that the steel workers dealt with it one way or the other. But there is this sense that we have to control the future, that we're very uncomfortable with competition and choice and the unpredictable quest for new knowledge, for new ways of doing things, whether those are in business or whether those are in social relations, and that it should be controlled. And I argue in The Future and Its Enemies and in other essays that those of us who have grown up in sort of a Cold War period or a period where socialism was the big threat, need to get our heads around the idea that alliances are going to change and who your friends and enemies are not necessarily going to be the same. And I think that what Brink is trying to do is to convince what I would call dynamist Democrats or dynamist liberals who are primarily concerned with these issues of dynamism, that they should make alliances with libertarians, even if they don't agree with libertarians about everything. 
in the same way that conservatives didn't agree with libertarians about everything. In fact, it has some very fundamental differences, but that there might be common ground, not simply on specific issues, but on a general thrust. Now, bearing all that in mind, how can liberal societies address illiberal threats in the 21st century? Well, that's a difficult question. It's, in fact, an issue that we dealt with in the 20th century. If you go back to the 50s, there was an enormous argument about what do you do about communist subversion inside liberal societies. And we know now that a lot of Soviet records have become open, that, in fact, there were a lot of communists working for the Soviet government in various capacities within the U.S., and yet, if you want to have a liberal society, you don't want to persecute people for their political views. And I think partly you do it through trial and error. I don't have a simple answer except to say that you have to value liberal society. You have to value it both in the sense of standing up to illiberal ideas and saying, no, you are wrong and we are right and we are not ashamed of our culture. We're not so accepting that we're going to say that all cultures are equally valuable. No, there is a lot of wisdom and goodness embodied in liberal society that's worth protecting and defending. But you also have to be willing and be secure enough to allow competing ideas to be heard and to believe, and this is the great liberal leap of faith, that you will win in the end, that you will have better arguments and you will have better empirical reality and you will have a better appeal to the basic human values that people have.